a librarian, a philosopher, and a statistician walk into a bar, and they can't find anyone to talk to. Nobody seems to understand what they are talking about. Nobody? No, there is someone, and this someone is Will Kurt. Will Kurt is the author of Bayesian Statistics, The Fun Way, and Get Programming with Haskell. Currently the lead data scientist for the pricing and recommendations team at Hopper, he also blogs about stats and probability at countbasey.com. In this episode, he'll tell us how a Boston librarian can become a data scientist and work with Bayesian models every day. He'll also explain the value of Bayesian inference from a philosophical standpoint, why it's useful in the travel industry, and how his latest book came into life. Finally, Will is also a big fan of the mind projection fallacy, an informal fallacy first described by physicist and Bayesian philosopher Edwin Thompson Jaynes. Does that intrigue you? Well, stay tuned, he'll tell us more in the episode. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 16, recorded March 23, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes wide. We Kurt, welcome to Learning Bayesian. Asian statistics. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show. I think you're the first Haskell people to be on the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're also the first account to be on the oh, show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm not actually a technically account. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I know, I know. But I had to say that because I love the title of your uh, website. <laughs> I actually would like that rumor to get around. I think the idea that like, he's actually yeah. he's actually account who chose Bayesian statistics because of elaborate puns that could be done. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Plus, Count Wilkert does sound good. It does, it sounds yeah, good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so actually, let's start by your background. I'm curious about what you studied. I love talking about my background. Yeah, so I've had a very strange road to getting to where I am. My undergraduate degree was English literature major. So that's usually a surprise to people. You'll see people being worried that they have like a PhD in biology and they're like, oh, I don't know if I could do data science. I'm like, oh, I'm an English major. You can do data science. You can do stats. So yeah, so I started out as an English lit major and I really did almost no math. I took one class in symbolic logic undergrad to avoid having to take calculus. So I was like a really like, I wasn't like a mathy English major. I was a very literate, like let's avoid classes. One exception that I had a roommate in college who was a really passionate mathematician. Actually, this is a really pivotal moment for me is he kind of allowed me to skip the sort of boring computational parts of math and sort of see the more beautiful parts of math. So my roommate, Greg, if he's listening, I give him a little shout out. But he really was actually a huge influence on me because he showed me sort of higher level, more abstract mathematics and the kind of interesting things that you could think about. So I guess I was a relatively mathematical English major and I was really interested in all these different things and I got interested in how you could represent numbers in different ways. So I was still very nervous about sort of the computational part as an undergrad, but because of my roommate, I really was able to see that there's a lot more to math than this sort of algebra and calculus. So that actually really set me off thinking about that. From being an English major, I decided I wanted to be a librarian. I worked in a public library for a bit and thought it would be cool to work in libraries. And so my original career path was English major to librarian. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> a really interesting road. Yeah, I mean, it's very original. I think you're definitely the first one to have this background on the show. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was an interesting transition too. I went to library school in Boston, and when I first got here, I had ambitions to be like a public librarian. I work with people, and but I had done some bookkeeping for the library I used to work at, and so when I was looking for jobs here, I ended up working at MIT at the MIT libraries, and so that was actually another huge moment for me because when I was there, I really wanted to learn how to program, and during winter session. 
session, they have this time where you can actually take courses for free. It's sort of like it's voluntarily run courses and anyone can take anything. So I took one on Python. I always tell the story. I always think it's funny. There was, I walked in this room, there's 250 people. And you know how when you do something new, you're always worried you're going to be the only one that doesn't know it and everyone else is. This case was actually true. I was sitting in this room of 250 really brilliant MIT students and the teacher said, okay, who here has programmed before? And literally everyone in the room raised their hand except me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was so terrified. I was like, I should just run away right now. And I was like, no, no, stay, stay, because that's the hardest, most scary part. So I stuck through, learned Python, and that sort of started a whole path of being interested in programming and software. And then eventually that led to being interested in probability and statistics in particular. Okay. So that's how you came into data science and statistics. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. I mean, it was a long road. Actually, I worked at a company called BBN Technologies, and I was a research librarian there. Hmm. And BBN Technologies was the original ARPANET contractor. Mm. So they are now acquired by Raytheon. But I was working there, and it was actually really funny because I remember at the time, this was 2008, I was working with a researcher. And so what I did is I helped researchers find papers and stuff back in the day before it was a lot easier. <laughs> and I remember I was learning about support vector machines, which at the time were sort of like the state-of-the-art way to do natural language processing. And so as a librarian, I spent a lot of time studying, cataloging, ordering books and things. And I didn't really like the sort of systems that librarians had. And when I talked to this person doing support vector machines, I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly how these type of problems should be solved, like in this sort of formal, quantitative way. And they're asking the same things that librarians care about, but in this very data-driven way. At the time, I thought it was impossible that I would never get there, that I would never have the math background to understand these things, that I would never really be a real programmer. And so that started me taking night classes to get better at computer science, and that eventually led to a master's in computer science and, and actually being able to learn a lot of those things. That's fascinating. Congrats on doing all that, because I guess it wasn't easy every day, because no. <laughs> because uh, learning, learning programming is not easy. And so doing that on your own while having another job, uh, it's always very hard. So I'm really impressed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something I did just because I was sort of driven by it. One thing that people ask me a lot is to go, well, how do you do this? Like, like what's the trick? And I'm like, well, you kind of just got to do it every day. You got to think about problems and, and sort of study what interests you every day. And that was the same thing when I got to the point in my career where I wanted to learn more statistics. Later on, I had been doing software for a while, kind of was interested in bigger sort of more mathematical problems. And, and I got attracted to statistics. And it was a similar thing. Once I started getting into stats and understanding math better, I spent my time studying that instead of programming as much. But yeah, so it's sort of, and even now, I always am sort of growing and continually figuring out like what interests me now. Let's study that and see what happens. Yeah, I took exactly the same path. Uh, not the librarian path. I didn't do either uh, computer science or stuff like that. I did a business school and then political science. So I was just like you, uh, really yeah. not into coding and so on. And I, it was exactly the same thing for me. I basically give the same advice usually to people asking me, well, how can I learn Python and so on? And often I answer, don't focus on Python or any programming language you want to learn. Focus on finding something that you're passionate about and try to find where you could use programming superpowers to supercharge this project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's just sort of driven by that excitement and that passion. Yeah. And uh, it's not surprising that you're a Bayesian. I think Bayesian statistics attracts a lot of people that come across statistics because they need it and they want to solve a problem rather than they want to learn statistics. I think that's sort of how people encounter Bayesian stats and they go, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And then they start going from there. Yeah, exactly. Clearly also this advice is good, I think, in the sense that you also have to emphasize the fact that there will be a lot of long and lonely nights and yeah. weekends where you're going to be uh, discouraged and disappointed and depressed. And so... Yeah, that's. I think that's actually the hardest part. Uh, people always ask me, you know, like, what are your tips and tricks? And, and, and I always bring this up is that the idea that you kind of have to be okay with feeling dumb and feeling stupid for a while. And it's a really awful thing, right? Especially when you change careers or when you've studied something a long time, when you know one thing well, to open a book and stare at it for hours and go, I think I'm an idiot, is really hard. And I think for a lot of people, the temptation is to close the book and say, that's not for me because it doesn't feel good to feel stupid. But it sort of is necessary to keep learning. I think it's a really important part of it is to be comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling and realize that that's okay. Like for me, I had been there so long and then you, know, you write two books and you go, oh my gosh, I guess I'm not a beginner anymore. Like, I think I may have accidentally learned something over this time, but I still feel like an idiot when I read things. I think I sort of accept that better, that like, yeah, I'm not going to master this thing. This is like a perpetual process and it's a perpetual growing and learning experience. Yeah. 
Exactly. And that's also why I think it's very important to find stuff you're passionate about, because then you will have the drive to go through these difficult moments and so on and keep the motivation going. So I think it's a good time now to speak about what you do nowadays, because now you're a, you're an established data scientist. Yes. So what, what do you do? Yeah, now I'm an established data scientist. So yeah, <laughs> I, I lead a team of data scientists at a company called Hopper. And Hopper does air travel, a very interesting time to be in the air travel market. We do hotels as well. So we have a range of different travel things. But hmm. the team I lead is the pricing and recommendations team. And we build out a lot of really interesting products around sort of pricing air travel. So the original thing that Hopper did was that that sort of differentiated them was they would do price prediction. They would tell you whether or not the ticket price was going to go up or down in the next n number of weeks, right? Which is a sort of like typical point of anxiety for a traveler. Should I buy today or should I buy tomorrow? So Hopper would say, wait or not, and and then you'd follow that advice. But then, and I always point out, it sort of introduces a new anxiety for customers because once you start watching a flight that Hopper said, wait, you get nervous. If you say, I want to buy this ticket, but you said, wait, it's going to get cheaper. But I want to get this ticket. How do I handle this? And so we started to build out products that sort of deal with that. One of our most popular products now is something we call Price Freeze which allows users to lock in sort of a price. If you see the price today and you want to buy, let's say it's $500 for a flight to Paris, pretending we could make that flight today from Boston, you could lock in that price for, let's say, $40. And we made it so that it's a deposit, which is really interesting. So you lock this price in for $40. And then if the price goes up to $600, you can still get that price. You still get the ticket for $500. And that $40 counts as a deposit. We're playing around with that deposit model now a bit now to see sort of how we can change our risk. But it's a really interesting problem because if you're familiar in finance, it sort of sounds like an option, right? It sounds like, I believe, a call option, right? And so you'd think we would just use these statistical techniques from finance. But the interesting thing is when you get into the details of how this all works, it's actually really complicated and it has a lot of things that don't exist in finance. So, for example, in finance, you have this privilege that you can assume that the price of an asset, since they can be traded in exchange, should actually reflect a certain amount of uncertainty into the future value of a price, right? So you have this nice luxury that you know the probability of it going up or down should be, in theory, equal given the price today. And you can use that to help you price the future risk. Where in air travel, that's not always the case because it's not this sort of exchangeable good. You can know tomorrow it's going to go up and the price is still what it is today. And then there's all kinds of other things where you try to optimize the user experience and you try to balance out conversion and margins and revenue. So it's a really surprisingly interesting problem. When I interview people for jobs, they usually come to me and go, oh, air travel, neat. It's like probably some relatively boring problems. And you get into these things and they almost always are like, wow, this is some actually really neat stuff. Yeah, clearly. That's not an ad, but no, I yeah, looked yeah. Uh, on, your, on your website and yeah. I really found the, the product amazing. And I really want to try that uh, one day for myself. So it's, it's really fun to be on the other end of it, sort of figure out how it all works and, and sort of build it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I said it in the introduction to the show, but we're recording on March 23. Yeah. So it's right in the middle of the COVID confinement and crisis in our respective countries, but we don't know. So I don't want to talk too much about that because, well, we hear a lot about this topic in all podcasts and so on. So I want also this episode to be kind of a break for people into this crisis, but I can't not ask you the question of how is this impacting your business and air travel and hotel bookings and so on. It's actually, it's really interesting. And it's a good thing to talk about in a stats podcast too, because it gets me thinking a lot about statistics as well. I know other people are too. I hear a lot of data scientists and statisticians are kind of going, huh, this is like a really strange time. And I think everyone in the industry might be feeling this, even if they're not aware of it, is it sort of a lot of models don't work right now, mm. right? Like a lot of models on how people behave. So we had a huge surge in sales, which was surprising. So March 5th, I want to say, American Airlines had a sale, or I think that was American Airlines. Airline prices were dropping because the market was sort of aware of what was going on. But users were not really anxious yet. They were really excited. And so we had huge spike in sales, which is interesting. Yeah. But we're trying to you know, build models to adapt our risks, to understand these things. And the tough thing right now, and I think this is actually sort of a universal problem and an interesting question about probability in general, how do you build models on a world that's changing, right? Like, if, Especially when it's changing in a way you don't know. So I actually had this grid I drew out of different cases that could happen, sort of like where our margins be and and I said, you know, here's what happens. Because we have two things that happen. People have a chance to, a probability of actually 
booking some sort of flight, and then money we expect to lose based on the price going up or down. Mm. So obviously, if trends go upwards, we expect to lose money, right? If you book a price at a certain thing, and statistically, it's going to go up, we should lose money. If prices go down, then we would gain money on average. We wouldn't lose money. The amount of money we lose is less on average. And so if you feel like this simple model, these two things balancing out, it's a weird thing because so this quadrant I had had these really three meaningful sections where I was like, okay, well, there's today where we know these two numbers and we can plan and we can model. But if there's a miracle cure tomorrow, and again, this is March 5th, and I wasn't really betting on a miracle cure, but if there was a miracle cure, you would expect like prices will skyrocket back up to where they were and everyone's going to want to book because everyone's excited about travel. Yeah. Everyone's getting a deal. So it's a really risky area for us, right? If that happened, it's great for the world. I wish that was the future we were in. The one quadrant I had was labeled global pandemic and everyone laughed. And I was like, I don't think that's funny. I think it's a real case. And it, it turned out to be, but it's a case where people are less excited about booking and prices continue to drop. That's where we actually have the least amount of risk. And then there was this other quadrant, which is sort of uncertain times, right? And then half of that is people book more, even though prices drop and it hurts us. And the other cases, people are booking a little bit less. And you know, it's a delicate balance between those two factors and sort of where our margins were. So we had to do a lot of planning. It was a really interesting time. The team had to figure out how to do this correctly. It's an interesting thing because, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is like, oh, we need to model this better. Let's get models. And it's a problem we have as a team is we're saying, you know, we're in a world where what is the stationary distribution, right? How do you predict a model, yeah. right? Yeah. One of my initial reactions was a huge part of risk is volatility. And if we are in a high volatility <laughs> world, then risk is so high, should we even sell this product, right? Like, does it even work? Is the right decision anything? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a thing that, you know, data scientists in general have been in a world that's very predictable and things tend to go up, right? Things tend to be better. You get more users, people spend more. So you can have kind of okay models and still make money, right? I've worked at some large companies and I think there was some not ideal models, but they all make money because everything makes money. So if your average is just up, then it's sort of hard to detect when you have a signal or not. But in this current environment, and I think we're seeing this on industrial level, and I think we're seeing this on an individual level too, right? We kind of want to know what's going to happen next. Right. And so everyone's out there modeling and they're doing some great work. I mean, even the early people were doing this quick little exponential models for disease. And there's a lot of pushback from epidemiologists saying, oh, don't put these amateur models on. But those early models are what people got people concerned and got people interested. But even the right SIR models that really do these differential equations to model disease, even those, you know, they're just estimates based on a ton of inputs. You know, even when we think about priors in Bayes, right, all these things, all these tools we have are, are kind of useless right now, right? So I think it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about in this because it's mm -hmm. something we don't talk about in stats. In stats, we almost always kind of assume we have a stable world and we know how things work. And the Bayesian advantage is coupling that we know how things work with past information, that we have some structure to this, right? That's really what makes Bayesian stuff better is we know how the world works and we can incorporate that into models and we can have better models. But I think it's really an interesting time for stats, when you look at the world and say, I don't know how this works. I know it's not good, but I don't know how bad it's going to be. And I don't know how to model that. And we really want to. People, you can feel the need. People want to model. We want to know, right? So in a business level, it's really hard because I think models that were used to predict sales in every industry this week don't work. You have to think about new data problems. But the thing is, we're still not in a stationary. This isn't even just like the Nassim Taleb black swan, right? This is like the black swan's there, but we're still in sort of like black swan land, right? Like we aren't in a stable environment. And it gets an interesting time for statistics. So I, I probably went deeper into what's happening now than you wanted. I think it's worth talking about because it's an interesting time to think about what is statistics and think about the philosophy of statistics and probability. No, yeah, you're right. It's really interesting. And uh, I'm glad that uh, you went uh, deeper than my, than my question. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and uh, it's also interesting to see that uh, you're uh, actually not depressed at all, even if you work in the travel industry. So it's really good. Uh, you're... I, don't, I don't know if I'm not depressed at all. I think I'm not optimistic, but I'm at ease with the fact that we're in a state where we don't know. It's like one of those things. It's just like being ignorant and learning is hard. Being ignorant in crisis is hard, right? It's the same sort of being comfortable in an uncomfortable place. That's where my English major past comes in, right? I read lots of English, like literature and philosophy. And a lot of that is about finding comfort in uncomfortable spaces and surviving there. So interesting times. Yeah, yeah, clearly. It means you have a, a lot on your plate, but uh, it's actually not that bad for you if people don't book when plane tickets are down. Yeah, it was an interesting case. Yeah. And of course, bookings are going down. We're going to see interesting times ahead and how we deal with that is an ongoing question at the office right now. So I, I have meetings today where we'll be talking about that. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. And actually, of course, you're using computers to do that. You talked about the fact that you began to learn Python. 
but you also wrote a book on Haskell. So I wonder what's your uh, go-to programming language these days oh, and why? So for someone that wrote a Haskell book, this answer is going to be shocking to people, <laughs> but probably R. R is probably my go-to. If I'm going to do data analysis, I'm going to write something up in R. Haskell is interesting. I actually had an interesting point in my life where I diverged from computer science into stats, and it actually it was based around Haskell. Mm. It was many, many, many years ago, and I was teaching a course on Haskell, mm. and I did. I just lived in Haskell for a whole month, and I used to be really obsessed with programming languages. I still really love them. I'm fascinated with all sorts of different programming languages, but that was sort of of like the peak of that moment and I was just really deep into Haskell and doing all this purely functional stuff and I actually got really frustrated because I felt like this is not getting me what I want out of the language and that's when I started doing R and learning stats mm. and I was like wow in a few lines of linear algebra in R I can solve these really complicated problems that like a lot of very pure and clean Haskell wasn't helping me solve yeah. and that sounds like a really not glowing endorsement for Haskell I think Haskell is a great language and so writing the book the Haskell book actually came out of that period of writing a lot of R. So I did Haskell. I was kind of disenchanted with it. I kind of felt like, okay, the language you use is not as important as the problems you're solving. Yeah. But I still had this love of programming languages and programming language theory. This is when I started writing the Count Basie blog and I had done a review for them like a, of one of the books they were going to publish. And so Manning came to me and said, hey, would you want to write a Haskell book? And I was really not sure how I felt about this. because <laughs> I, I was like, I haven't written Haskell in a couple of years. And I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not in love with the language. And then I realized that's why I wanted to write the book because there's a lot of sort of zealousness in the Haskell community that this is the only way to write code. It's this perfect, pure paradigm of programming. And that leads to a view of the language that I think can be frustrating to beginners because you approach Haskell and you're going, it's hard for me to write Hello World. Again, I feel very stupid. I think because I'm kind of ambivalent on Haskell, I think I can write a really good Haskell book and I can write the Haskell book that I wanted to write. One that's willing to sort of admit that this is weird, this is annoying, but also to say, hey, this is really cool though. Mm. Like don't throw the baby out with the bath water, so yeah. to speak, right? Like Haskell is an amazing language. I think one of the most unique programming languages there is. I think the one thing it really shares in common with Bayesian stats, this is the thing I always think about, people don't ever ask me about this, but I think one thing that they both have in common is Haskell being a purely functional programming language, you can build everything from first principles. Mm. So you can start with a few primitive ideas about how higher order functions work and how functions should work in general and data types work. And you can build a list from scratch in a really meaningful way. And you can build out all of these functors and monads and all these things. And you can build all of this from scratch. And even though it's complicated and weird, it's completely transparent. And you can really feel like you built this computation from his first principles. And I think Bayesian stats feels the same way to statistics. Like given these primitive rules of probability, we can build out a statistical framework for any experiment you want. And I think that's one thing that they both have in common. I think it's thing I really love a lot about Haskell is that feeling that like you really feel you have this deep understanding of what you're doing and what you're working on and how things work. Mm, that's interesting. So this means you're mainly working with R when you have to do data analysis, data science, and so on? R and Python. I like Python still. My data analysis in Python is really embarrassing. If I do programming in Python, it's fine. I really love writing code in Python, but my, my command of pandas is awful. R, I'm much more fluent in. So what's your favorite technical stack when you work on Bayesian stuff? Oh, geez. So for Bayesian stuff, you know, I'm actually not like a big, like hierarchical modeling person. I feel like my biggest Bayesian tools are like LaTeX, right? Like mm. writing out formulas, writing equations out and thinking about things probabilistically. I like working with Stan and I just build relatively simple things. But I find the bigger approach I have to solving problems that is Bayesian is thinking in terms of sort of generative models, right? Like whenever you have a problem, think, okay, how is this a probability problem? Mm -hmm. How do I get the probability of the data given what I believe? And how do I even state what I believe? I had a really interesting conversation about this many, many years ago at a company. I won't mention it. it was an interview at a company. I didn't get the job offer. And I was talking to someone and they said, how do you solve this problem? I said, well, we got to get in terms of like the probability of what you see. And you know, we need that likelihood to start with. We need to know the probability of what you see and given what you believe. And the person said, well, you can't always get that. And I said, well, if you can't get that, then you don't really have like an articulate view of what you believe. Like you don't have a quantified version of your beliefs. And if you don't have that, you can't work with it. I said, if you can't give me a number that expresses the probability of what you see given you believe, that means you're not going to be surprised if an elephant walks into your room, hmm. right? Like that should be surprising. And if you feel like that's surprising, you have to have some way to describe that quantitatively. Yeah. It could be a very simple, very stupid model, but you need to get to a place where you can say, okay, this is some numbers mapped to my beliefs. And 
it's also a huge part of clarifying your thought process because a lot of times our thoughts are muddled and we don't really know how a problem works. But when we start decomposing it into just the basic parts of Bayes' theorem and we start asking that question, because it's a huge part of what I love Bayesian stats, and I used to give this talk to people all the time about sort of just the base factor and the likelihood ratio. We look at ideas by how well they explain the world, right? The battle for ideas is if you have an idea that explains the world better than mine enough, we go with it, right? And we can add priors to make that more nuanced and all that. But the biggest thing is it's this competition between ideas, but that requires this framework where we think about things as hypotheses and we look at the probability of that hypothesis. So I feel like in general, for every kind of problem I've been faced with, I start writing out what's the probability of events? What's the probability of the thing I want to know? And how do I turn this into a probability problem where I'm computing some kind of expectation? And, you know, even if it ends up just being a simple linear model that you use and you're kind of assuming these very stupid priors as your priors <laughs> and you're just working with point estimates, even if you're doing that, as long as you are conscious of that process, you can still use those tools. As long as you know, given these kind of naive assumptions, this is how the world should work, then you can ask questions how should the world work? Like I said, the biggest thing for me, the biggest Bayesian toolkit really is a generative approach to thinking and a probabilistic approach to thinking and thinking in terms of models. Yeah, it's actually also basically what Michael Betancourt, for instance, said when I had him on the show for episode six. Yeah, he emphasized, you know, having a, a workflow for modeling and always the first step would be to think generatively about your data and think about what could have generated your data. And that would be the first step. Yeah, it actually marries quite well, you know, with the causal inference uh, framework if you're doing uh, directed acyclic graphs and so on. Thinking in models is a huge part of it and understanding that we're always working from a model. Yeah. I think that's like a common misunderstanding. My point I want to talk about too is this <laughs> changes mind projection fallacy. Yeah. Actually, I'll get to that in a second. But one example I always give, and I'll bring this up again, I think when we talk about that, but like people talk about population means. There are traditional like statistical tests will say these two population means are different. And it's always been a point of frustration to me because when we think about parameter estimation, we have uncertainty in the measurement of a real value, right? So if you're measuring temperature outside, you're going to use your observations to come up with some estimate of the true temperature. But population mean is not a real thing. You can't touch it, you can't use it, and it's used all the time, right? We talk about two groups of people being taller or shorter, and people will sort of pass the buck on this to say, oh, well, we should use median, that's what you mean. And I'm like, well, median is just sort of like an ad hocism to say what you really want, which is like, there's a certain probability someone is as tall. That's not to say you can't compare population means, right? We shouldn't just throw that out. But that when you do population means, what you have to say is, if we're going to use two linear models to model these populations, and we're only going to use the intercept of these models as our model, it's an intercept-only model, we're going to use two models, then p-values or whatever you want to use to calculate it, then what they tell you is, is it worth making two models? <laughs> and if you think of it that way, all the times where you use population means in a ridiculous way come out. The example I always give is like if you want to build a roller coaster, right? <laughs> and you want to have it so that certain number of people will get into the roller coaster based on the height requirements for the ride. You don't want to look at the mean for that, right? It's not because mean is a bad measurement. It's because mean does not answer that question. And you also don't even really want to look at median unless you actually care about the median of the population group, right? You actually want to look at the whole distribution of these things and say, what is the probability given this height and percent of the population we get in? And so, but all the time we make these assumptions about means of populations and like I said, I've seen people that say, oh, well, that means we shouldn't use the mean. I'm like, no, 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 no. that's totally fine. There are many cases where that's a, a really decent model. But when we forget that we're thinking in terms of models, that's when we get in trouble. Mm. So all the time for business decisions, I will use linear models and make assumptions based on linear things. But I never forget that these are these sort of limited assumptions and slight tweaks in those assumptions can change our projections and our predictions and all these other things. Yeah. And actually, I want to dig deeper into these ideas that you develop actually in your second book in yeah. a minute. We'll come back to that. But that made me curious because you seem versed into these almost philosophical debates and also passionate about them. So I wonder how you were first introduced to Bayesian methods, because usually they're not taught in Statistics 101 at university. So how did you meet them? That's a great question. Yeah. And so I actually didn't meet them philosophically. I met them very practically. Mm. Uh, but I think I'm in inherently philosophical person. Like, as a side note on philosophy, I don't believe philosophy is like a side project, right? I believe existence, being alive, is the question of what is it to be alive. So to me, philosophy invades everything I do. <laughs> but yeah, the question for how I got introduced is actually it was an interesting problem. So at this point in my career, I had been a software engineer and I worked for the federal government for a bit doing some data science work. But I was pretty new at data science. This was 2012, 2013. 
And I was sort of in that like, let's build complex models. Let's just like, let's do a random forest. Let's build a neural network, that type of get data in a matrix, plug it in. Very naive way of doing things. Very young way of doing things. <laughs> and I started working at a company called Kissmetrics that did a lot of analytics data. <laughs> and one of the things I did for them was I had to run their A-B tests. I actually knew nothing about statistics. And they're like, we need to tell if these two variants are different. And I said, well, I know I can just go find a book on like classical statistics that will tell me like how to plug these numbers into a t-test and get a p-value. It's all magic to me. I really am uncomfortable with magic in my analytics because I want to be able to interrogate what I'm doing and ask questions and know that I feel like it's the right answer, not because I plugged in some calculator and said p-value is less than this. We're going to go with it. So as I just started thinking about it. I knew a little bit about probability. I've been interested in probability for a while, uh, but not really statistics. And so I started thinking, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? I said, well, we have two variants. We've had so many cases of success, so many cases of failure. I know how to get a point estimate for that. I know how to say this is like, you know, a binomial distribution. And then I said, how can I compare these two? Because I knew there was uncertainty, right? I knew that this part of statistics had to be there. And I was like, okay, so now I need to know that there's some kind of uncertainty. How in the world am I going to estimate what this uncertainty is? And I was like, okay, well, I guess we could imagine all the alternate cases that could happen and look at the relative probabilities of those. And then I started diving into more traditional texts on Bayesian stats because I knew that this was like Bayesian thinking. And I came across the beta distribution, which was like the more proper solution to this. So it's like, okay, so if you have these two observations, you've got two beta distributions, and then you can just sample from them. All I knew is like, you can just sample from these things in R and I could call it A. And so that's how I built out this first A-B test. And I was very anxious about it. And I actually built in priors to it as well. People were worried about early stopping and all these things. And I wanted a tool that would allow the marketing team to call a test as soon as they wanted to. So I did some sort of like eyeball priors and said, okay, these look fine. Typically the values are between this and this. I didn't do any formal methods for that, but I gave sort of weak priors to that. And it was really cool because the CEO of the company sent me an email one day and he goes, Will, the results you gave us for the probability of improvement are different than this online calculator I did. This online calculator says it's going to be a much bigger success than you're saying. And I was like, oh, that's because I actually use these priors and the priors are kind of keeping our estimates a little bit more sane. And he liked that. He was really happy about that. But I thought it was cool that a CEO actually like called me and, and was like, this is that. So that's actually what started it, is having to write an A-B test. And it was actually one of my earlier blog posts because I was very nervous that I was wrong because I was an English major that learned computer science. And then eventually I did get a master's in computer science, but I still didn't know much formal math. And so I started writing in part because I was like, okay, the internet's really good at letting you know if you're wrong. So I'll start putting this stuff out there. I would lose sleep at night and I started reading more and more Bayesian books because I had to make sure I was doing the right thing. It seemed right. And the test to me, and this is the key to Bayesian stats, the test to me is you can analyze each piece of it and ask yourself, does this make sense? And does this make sense? And does this make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, it's not because some random test is supposed to be changed. It's because someone can point to you and say, this assumption you're making is incorrect. Don't you see why? And you can go, oh yeah, I do see why. Mm. That's also when I fell in love with Bayesian stats because I was like, this makes sense. I used to joke that my favorite mathematical subject is probability and my least favorite is statistics. <laughs> and seeing Bayesian stats changed that. And then reading Jane's, reading E.T. Jane's probability theory, the logic of science completely changed me because I felt like I wasn't crazy. I felt like, okay, here is someone who knows a lot more math than me, that's a lot more quantitative than me. And he's saying, statistics, as we normally know, it seems crazy. We don't need it to be crazy. We can start from these base principles and build everything out from there. And you don't need to have magic happening anymore. And you can know how every test you run makes sense. And it can be your tools that you understand. And it can be logic and reason and make sense. And that is what really turned me on to Bayesian statistics. Yeah, that's a nice answer. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a nice segue to not dig a little deeper into your uh, second book that you wrote uh, last year, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. That's called uh, Bayesian Statistics, the Fun Way. Well, can yeah, you tell right, us yeah. the elevator pitch first and uh, how, how it comes into life? Bayesian Statistics, the Fun Way, came out of a lot of blog posts. So it's really a lot of blog posts cleaned up and organized better. But what I wanted to exist is there is no intro Bayesian stats book for regular people for people like I was in 2012. And every good Bayesian book, even Kushki's, like, it's, you know, he talks about it's for, like, it honors students or whatever like that, right? Like, it's advanced. It requires some basic foundation in statistics, some sense of math. You need to know calculus. You need to be familiar with all these things. But there's a bajillion really awful stats books that pump you full of p-values and chi-squared distributions and say, this is how you do this. I was very annoyed because 
it meant the only people that were getting to see Bayesian stats were people that already were good at stats, and it was an alternative to what they did. And I really feel like Bayesian statistics is better and easier to understand than traditional orthodox statistics. And I wanted it to be accessible to as many people as possible because I, I genuinely feel like it makes statistics make sense and it makes people better statisticians. But like I said, the biggest thing is it's because it's the easier way to do statistics. If you have to do an A-B test, building it up from Bayesian principles it just makes sense and it doesn't confuse you. It's like you have control over it. And also it's a worldview about statistics that I really like. And I, so I wanted people to read it, even if they're not running tests, because I want them to think about the world in a Bayesian way. I want them to think about probabilities. Uh, one quick anecdote I really liked. <laughs> I had a coworker a few jobs ago. He said, oh, Will, I read your book and I was in an argument with my wife about whether we left something at home or we lost it. <laughs> and I used your analysis to convince her we probably just left it at home because the prior probability that we lost it is really low because we don't really lose things that often. And we do leave them at home a lot. So I use that, even though both of these explain what we observed equally well, the prior probability of each is different. And so I was able to calm her down when she was stressed out because of this book. And that's exactly what I want from that book. I want a book that people can use to say, hey, here's the information I have. Let me think about this as like a back to the envelope Bayesian and make these estimations. But you can also, if you're a marketer, if you're a business person, you can run tests, you can do basic, you know, sort of single variable hypothesis testing and sort of have all those classical statistical tools at your disposal and have the ability to write more tools if you need to. Yeah, I love this idea of helping people apply Bayesian methods in their daily life. As you said, this person that who told you, oh yeah, I apply the Bayesian uh, statistics to uh, whether I had lost or uh, forgotten something at home. It's awesome. I think it's really also, uh, as you said, not only a formula that you use only for statistics and math, but also kind of a way of life of thinking rationally. If you want to think rationally, then you have to apply this method and it's really quite easy also to pick up. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of what I love about Bayesian stats. And that's what I really wanted to share with that book, because I do feel that that little formula really gives you this framework for thinking. I yeah. have a couple examples later in the book I really like. I analyze an episode of the Twilight Zone in one. Mm. And what I like is you can actually infer the prior beliefs of people, yeah. right? You look at their behavior and you can actually quantify like, oh, this is what these two characters believe about the supernatural based on what I've seen. And you realize these tools let you think about people. I have another chapter that kind of surprised me myself. I was sort of writing it at a weird time, but it's about how there's cases where you can't give people. If you both have the same data, the same sort of likelihood and different priors, then you can't change it with data. If your function that's sort of in analyzing the data that comes in will explain it just as well as another hypothesis, but you have a prior for one hypothesis over the other, I point out that if you're in this case, then you have to stop focusing on data yeah. and start focusing on priors. Yeah. I think the example is like someone, you might think someone's cheating at a game, right? They're saying they have supernatural powers and you think that they have loaded dice. And if they have loaded dice, it's equally as well explained as if they actually have supernatural powers, but you don't believe it. So how do you solve this? Well, you can't just keep rolling dice to solve it because you both have this mechanism that's going to explain the data exactly the same. And so you need to start asking questions. Okay, if your prior is this low, how can I adjust that prior? Can I change the experiment design? If you go out and buy dice, will you be convinced then? And then it gets to the next point, which if someone says no, then we're not really talking about probability theory anymore, which is important. You can have beliefs that are not subject to change, but you have to acknowledge when that happens. So if you're talking to someone that thinks the earth is really flat and you start saying, okay, what data would change your prior? Like what data would change your likelihood if your explanation is just as good as mine, no matter what? So what's going to change your prior? And they can't tell you. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that you're not talking about probabilistic reasoning anymore and you have to stop trying to go that avenue. So there's plenty of things in the world that are irrational and not part of a reasoned Bayesian framework, but you have to know when you are in that framework and when you're not. And if you may have accidentally gone outside, you need to clear that up. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's really something that resonates with me. Although in the case of flat earth, you can prove they are wrong. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I get, yeah. I get oh, your yeah. point. But yeah. exactly, it's something that I try to use also in political arguments, you know, because often it's really useless to have political arguments with people who are completely on the opposite side of you, yeah. because you just end up having a debate, quote unquote, where everyone is just uh, displaying confirmation bias. Yeah. So usually what I'm trying to do is trying to understand what the people in front of me has as priors, yeah. you know, and I'm trying to understand what his priors are, what my priors are, and see how with the same yeah. data, with the, the exact same data from a politician, we would arrive to diverging conclusions. Then you can talk about the priors and think about whether they are justified rationally or not, or maybe if it's not a subject where you can be wrong or right, then you can say, okay, we diverge on this prior, but at least we arrive 
arrived at rational conclusion and also an interesting discussion instead of just shouting classical arguments that go in yeah. our sense. Oh, yeah. And, it's, and like I said, we can identify that you're in this place where they're not going to move. You can at least realize this is fruitless. I can't get past whatever ideology you have in place. It's interesting, too, because I think one thing that I always like to think about with Bayesian stats is the way the hypothesis works in all of this, right? Like the hypothesis is a continuing, evolving thing. I think actually it's like a big fan of like postmodernist critical theory when I was an undergrad and sort of like Marxist literary theory and all these complicated literary theories. One thing that I really like about Bayesian stats is that there is no truth. There's just better hypotheses. There's better models. And I think that actually when you read a lot of sort of like confusions about sort of classical, I don't even want to say frequentist. I think it's unfair to people that do frequentist stats. I think there's like orthodox statistics. That's what Jaynes calls it, mm. which isn't really about your interpretation of belief so much as your interpretation of science and how things work. And so the null hypothesis, right? That's like such a binary way of thinking. What does it mean to have a mean of zero in your model, right? Like what do these things mean? What's the difference? The difference is actually zero and created. All those questions are this very binary, very there is a truth way of looking at things. And philosophically, that's a huge, but again, this is philosophical and it's practical as well, right? I think there's this departure in thinking where in more traditional orthodox statistics, we are searching for the truth. We're searching for the platonic distribution that handles the truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> God is normally distributed and that's how he gives us answers. Yeah. And in the Bayesian framework, there's no end. There's no ultimate model. The model we have today that explains things the best. And models that explain things worse may not be wrong, right? Like, or, you know, the classic, all models are wrong, some are useful, but they may be closer to reality. It doesn't discount the existence of those other models. Mm. And it really means that like the project we're on is continually being refined and adapted. There is no golden H, right? H's always have a subscript in Bayesian statistics, right? <laughs> That's always <laughs> which hypothesis are we talking about? Yeah, exactly. That's a very good point. We could talk about that for hours, but to try and talk about your book a little more, yeah. I guess that what we just talked about are skills that you wanted to pass on to your readers. I'm wondering what were the skills that you tried to instill in readers? Yeah, so there was a couple with that book. There's not a whole lot of math in it. There's not a whole lot of code, but I did <laughs> want people to sort of think mathematically when they could. <laughs> so I tried to keep notation there. I feel like I'm not really great with mathematical notation in general. I like to use it a lot, but I don't feel like I use it like a good mathematician does. But one of the things I actually wanted people in the book is to not shy away from mathematics, <laughs> to not shy away from using notation as a way to describe things. I think one way to do beginner books is to try to hide the math. And I hit a lot of the calculations. Like I use integral symbols a lot, which is a lot for a beginner book, but I don't require or any manual integration, right? Mm. And I want people not to be scared when they see a curly S, right? And it's <laughs> a really big thing. So I kept as much as I could the notation there. I use R when the computation makes sense to use R. Mm. In fact, that's sort of my thing. Is like you want to think in terms of symbols, but when you have to compute, use R. And so it's sort of in practical skills, that's sort of what I wanted people to get set up with. I wanted people to understand how to run sort of simple A-B tests. I wanted them to know how to compare hypotheses and how to sort of see these primitive things together. I think someone who's very good at math would look at my book can say it's not that rigorous, but I want someone who has an aversion to math to come out being less afraid to sort of use mathematical notations to reason about problems. So that was actually one of my sort of secret goals throughout that book. Mm, that's a nice goal. Would you say you achieved your goals and maybe what would you do differently the next time you write such a book or the next time you have to introduce a general audience to Bayesian reasoning? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the risks in being an author is you always think, I want to put more. Yeah. Like there's nothing about hierarchical models in that book. And part of me thinks, well, that's what Bayesian stats is in the wild, right? It's a lot of Bayesian statisticians are doing. But I don't know. I feel like I'm happy with what's in there. I'm happy with how short it is. It's always tough picking a program programming language between R and Python and knowing what's popular and what makes people happy. It's sort of not timeless because of that, right? If I use base R, so that'll be around for a while. That'll work. Yeah. I think I can always rewrite the introduction. I had sort of a different place. I wrote the introduction in the beginning and then came back to it. And mm. I could probably imbue even more philosophy in it. But overall, I'm pretty happy with what it was. It's short. It's easy to read. And it's designed in a way that you can stop at any point and you'll have taken something away. Mm. So if you stop after the first section, you'll have at least the basics of probability. If you stop after that, you'll understand Bayes' theorem enough. If you keep reading through the book, you'll understand some basic stuff. So I'm actually pretty happy with how that book came out. And I don't think there's any major changes I would want to make to that one. Oh, great. Actually, for what uh, it's worth, I think you were right uh, not to include hierarchical models in an introductory book. Because, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think some of these concepts that are easier to understand conceptually, but harder to implement in practice, you know, and yeah. that's exactly what we talked about with uh, Thomas 
Vicky on episode 11. Actually, yeah. it was dedicated to hierarchical models. And yeah, we agreed on the fact that these models are really powerful and awesome, but they are really tricky to fit and to sample from. I actually really like your podcast for that, because even for me, I've talked with uh, Colin Carroll, who's on your podcast about this, and a couple other people. Yeah. It's a mm -hmm. really tough space because, you know, someone who wrote a Haskell book and wrote a Bayesian stats book, when I go to use Stan, I still struggle. Mm -hmm. When I use PyMC3, I still struggle. I get weird errors. And I feel like, wow, the people doing this work are incredible. And there's some really brilliant people working on it. But that barrier to entry is still so hard to cross. Like I said, like I had this sanity check where I was like, I remember like not that long ago, like just learning Stan a few years ago and, and being like, I should figure this stuff out. I should know this better. I'd be like, why is this so hard? <laughs> and I think it's just because it is hard. It's a hard thing. We're not there yet. Where we are with probabilistic programming is like kind of where deep learning was in 2012, 2013. Like the frameworks were really tricky. You're implementing a lot of stuff from scratch. Debugging things is hard. Understanding things is hard. So it's a really interesting problem. It's so exciting to see this stuff happening. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, and there's such powerful models, and it's really cool to be able to say, <laughs> yes, this is what Bayesian stats can do. But at the same time, it's so hard to get up and get things done. So actually, listening to your podcast has always been great for me. Because I'm like, okay, so like these people who are amazing agree that this is actually really hard. Yeah, that's also one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast. So I'm really glad that you're telling that because it's one of the goals of the podcast is to emphasize the fact that it's normal not to be able to do everything at once because this stuff is really hard. And actually, Richard McElroth, the author of uh, the Rethinking book, he's mm -hmm. got a really nice way of saying that in his classes, he always says, this stuff is really difficult and it took me years to understand them. So if you're confused, it's only because you're paying attention. And so it's I really love this sentence. I love it. I've been through all of his lectures and read through that book and can't wait for the second edition to get a copy of it. It's, yeah. He's done so much amazing work for Bayesian. I really, really like what he's done. I didn't get the chance to read statistics rethinking until after I finish Bayesian statistics the fun way because you kind of when you're writing a book you're just so only writing the book and it's so hard to read other books yeah yeah and I was actually so nervous that he was just gonna take it in a totally different direction and what really made me happy is that it was a very natural next step for what Bayesian Statistics the Fun Way does. I'm so happy his book exists because it really fills this gap mm. of putting all of this stuff in a framework that's same. He's a brilliant writer too. I love reading his writing. I love the way he thinks. But yeah. it's a really much needed piece of the, the puzzle because I feel like the next biggest gap after my book is like there's no totally from zero books, but then there's not a lot of really good, I need to solve these problems. And I think like I was statistically thinking is this, it's really great. And I read it. It was just a delight. It was so fun, like finally getting it. I'm glad I didn't read it till after I finished because I was so excited to see the way he sort of maps out at the beginning ties up with how I kind of finish what I have. And so I was really happy to see that and just happy that that book exists. So Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so, yeah, basically the idea that uh, this stuff is hard. And so just start by learning how to crawl before you learn how to run, you know? So <laughs> it's basically the idea. Actually talking about uh, difficulties, I wonder uh, which difficulties you encountered uh, with the book and what you learned from these difficulties. You know, it's funny. The most interesting part of the book for me is I, I actually didn't know I would include a section on the normal distribution. Mm. A lot of it is from earlier blog posts. And so the, the first part of the book is all new. And then it is a lot of blog posts. I actually rewrote everything. The original draft of the book was like not a lot of writing. It was mostly recycle old blog posts and make a book. In practice, so if you read my blog and you haven't gotten the book, I recommend it because it, I really reworked everything in there. And there's very few things that are taken verbatim from the blog. That actually was a hard part too, is how much writing ended up happening. Yeah, It was funny because I remember working through parts on the normal distribution and I actually probably could rework that some more forever but it was just interesting because I had this section where I was talking about averages as like the mean as a good estimate for something and it was just a weird moment where I'm like yeah why does it work we know from grade school take these numbers sum them up divide it by the total that's your estimate but we never talk about why that's a good estimate and you know and I think like you know Jane's would talk about like maximum entropy and it's a good distribution and I, and I came up with some sort of I couldn't go that deep in the book so I came up with some sort of examples that sort of show it just works even when things are weird but it was a funny part writing that because I was like, this is a weird thing because we don't ask questions. And so you're writing these books and you start saying like, we should average these. And then as someone who believes you should understand why you do everything, mm -hmm. it's really funny to like say like, why do we average things, right? Like, yeah, it makes sense. When we compute expectations on complicated distributions, we kind of understand it better. But day to day, everybody averages things. Dude, that was like the most sort of surprising chapter to write was just saying like, 
yeah, we can average things. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, a weird, it's a weird thing to attack, right? Yeah, exactly. Actually, so we're getting short on time. So I think it's the moment to talk about one of your uh, favorite topics now. Oh, I'm talking about Edwin Jane's mind projection fallacy. You talked about it uh, earlier. Yeah, so mind projection, I've been thinking about it a lot since the book ended. And I'm glad we get to talk about this. because <laughs> so, so the mind projection fallacy... Real quick, it's related to the idea that data is important and everything. So James's mind protection fallacy is that we often in statistics confuse properties of our mind for properties of the world. Mm -hmm. An example of this, we talk about stochastic processes, right? Mm -hmm. Random variables. The variable isn't random. The variable is unknown. The randomness is a statement of our inner mind. Stochastic processes are not stochastic. It's a statement of our knowledge. And this is a really, really important part of modeling. And, and not even just modeling, but thinking that we get wrong. I gave a talk and I mentioned like Taleb's Fooled by Randomness, right? I said, if you think of Fooled by Randomness, and it's, it's a good book, I enjoyed it. It's like this idea of randomness we have as a culture, as people, is like it's this spooky force out there, right? But if you change that title to say, Fooled by My Incomplete Information About the Situation, We'd say, well, obviously, right? Like, that's not surprising. Yeah. And I think even, I always quote sort of Einstein's thing is, you know, Einstein's Heisenberg argument, right? Like, God does not roll dice. But if you just frame what Heisenberg's saying as like, this is limits to human knowledge, right? It's a very different statement. But we have this superstition about what random means. We look at noise and we see it all the time. We feel like there's this magical thing out in the world generating things. But everything we talk about in statistics is a statement about our knowledge. This is important too, because a couple examples I think about is like, you know, common thing is people will come across fat tail distributions and go, ah, look at this. We've been using Gaussians wrong all these years. We should be using these fat things that incorporate all this uncertainty. But that uncertainty is really just like a big shrug your shoulders. I don't know, right? Like you can't just substitute Gaussian for like Levy distributions in models and have it work, right? Because it doesn't mean anything. Another sort of practical example is like the idea of robust regression, right? So robust regression says, well, let's rather than using Gaussian error, we'll use like a student's T error. And it sounds brilliant because you go, okay, so we're robust now. But a tweet once I said, this should be considered stubborn regression, right? Because we're not being surprised by things at the extremes. That's what that means, right? And it's because we feel like this distribution is magic, right? We feel like this distribution has this property of having these sort of fatter tails and longer tails. And so we're capturing this, but you're not capturing anything, right? You're saying, I don't know. And I refuse to be dissuaded by faraway data points. And I feel like that's a very dangerous assumption. It may be correct sometimes, but it's not really a great way to handle outliers. And again, the idea of outliers. This was like a tweet I had a long time ago, I got some people mad. It was like, outliers are not a Bayesian concept, right? Outliers, you say there's data that doesn't belong. What does that mean? Again, this is thinking that there's this distribution the data comes from, that's real, and it creates the data, and those outliers are bad. Well, no, the outliers are real. This James's main point in the whole book is data is all that's real. Everything else is our sort of beliefs. So that's a huge thing, though. When you start thinking about all of statistics, all of probability, all of these things are really ways of organizing our information and handling our own internal ignorance, it leads to clearer thinking. I think that's actually where even with these sort of complicated Bayesian models we get, they're hard to train. And I think one thing I'm a little skeptical sometimes of these is that we sometimes think complexity will magically create information, right? If you don't know, there's no clever statistics that solve this, right? Which can get back to the theme of, of the world we're in today. This is, I think, the, the temptation of statistics is if I'm complicated enough, if I'm rigorous enough, if I use enough math, if I have enough integral symbols in front of my equation, I will somehow capture the unknown. I'll somehow be able to conquer the limits of my knowledge. You can't. This fallacy is so important to really deeply instill that all probability is statements of ignorance. And when you start understanding that, there's no magic to creating knowledge from ignorance. You can get more data, but in an uncertain world right now, right, there's no clever epidemiological model. There's ones that are better than others at explaining what we see, that are predicting what will happen, obviously. But this desire to figure it out, to solve it, is this superstitious belief that somewhere out there in statistics is the answer. There's the right way of doing things. There's the frequentist or the Bayesian way. There's having more priors or less priors. There's the right way to solve this problem. And when we do that, we will be given knowledge. It doesn't work that way, right? That's why in some ways I just stick to simpler models because we don't know much. So making few assumptions and seeing what happens is often the sanest decision to make. The hardest part of statistics is confessing that sometimes you truly are ignorant of the information you wish you had to make the correct decision. 
That's really interesting. Makes me think about uh, a lot of stuff, but uh, I, I <laughs> guess uh, we'll have to do a second episode to talk about all of that. But it's really interesting. And actually, I think we should put the Jane's book that uh, you referred uh, several times during the episode in the show notes for uh, oh, for people yeah. uh, who are interested. So one of the questions I often ask my guests, and I think it's interesting to ask you too, because it sounds like you do a lot of models, or at least you think about them a lot. So I'm wondering if you have a favorite model or a favorite method. Yeah, I think I'm going to definitely go with logistic regression, right? Like plain old logistic regression can solve such a surprising number of problems, (laughs) can be used in so many interesting ways. And it's a model that I thought I understood well a decade ago, and I was totally wrong. I think most people, especially coming from computer science, logistic regression is taught as the sort of simplest machine learning algorithm. And it's just there as an example. And then you approach it from a statistical perspective, you just start getting a lot more insight into how this works, how what a useful model it is. And it's an incredibly powerful tool, even in its most simplest form, because it gives you a probability at the end. That's why I like it over like other linear models, right? Yeah. So it's a really powerful thing. And there's a lot of thought that goes into it. I wrote a lot about it this summer, just really thinking about different ways you can envision it. And I still am not totally satisfied with sort of the depth you can know. So it's always nice when these tools that you think of as like the simplest tool, you come back to it and realize it's this incredibly nuanced, complicated thing. I really like logistic regression. And I think at this point in my career, it's sort of the default tool I go to for any problem. And even just sticking to that, there's a lot of small changes you can make to how you express things I can do. I had a simple pricing model I was working on where it's like, if we look at the probability of the user using price freeze and we treat as a linear function in a logistic model of money is one thing. If it's an exponential function of that, it's totally different behavior (laughs) and you need more data to figure out which fits better. And so it's a really interesting tool to explore things. And I think it has so much depth. It has danger too, right? Because it's a simple model, but it's... It's amazing how much you can get done with just a little bit of logistic regression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the fact that they give you probabilities as a result is really interesting because uh, most of the time you're doing Bayesian analysis because precisely you care about uncertainty and estimating these uncertainties. So giving back probabilities as a result of your analysis is really useful. And also they are really good to teach uh, prior predictive checks, I find, because of the logit inverse link. It distorts the outcome space versus versus the parameter space. So what you think are flat priors on the parameter space are not flat priors on the outcome space. So it's really good to teach prior predictive checks. Oh yeah, no, it's good for teaching that. And it's just a very flexible tool. Like all of my logistic regressions always end up being pulled apart and put into other models to sort of see how we expect the world to behave. And so the fact that it's very easy to play with, I never thought of logistic regression when I was younger as a model you kind of open up and play with. And now I think of them as like, okay, like here's what do we learn about the data we had? Mm. What does this mean if this happens? And it, and it's a combination of like posterior predictive check in a way, right? Like you're sort of seeing, okay, how does this match up to the data? Mm. I mean, I, actually, a great example I had was there's these two models. I was just describing it. But for this very simple pricing problem I had, I just wanted to see, okay, there's a probability someone will attach price freeze given a price. And if you train it with a linear one, it implies there's a price that is the optimal, right? You multiply the two, you get this hill. They say that's the peak. But if you say it's a log relationship, which is not crazy to think that there's sort of this exponential relationship between price or this log relationship, that model implies that there's actually no upper bound. People will pay as much and it, it's in higher proportion than the way that the probability goes lower. So there's like really no upper bound to how, which is absurd, right? But it's neat because both of these models, but it fits the data better. So it's interesting because even in this trivial case, you get these really interesting questions about, okay, well, how do people actually behave? How do we model these prices? And it's been really fun. And again, it's this very simple approach to the data, but because you can pull it out and you can see what happens if you change your assumptions about it and you can sort of mess with anything about it, you can kind of really get a feel for what's happening in your data and what you'd expect to happen if you change things. So yeah, it's, it's just a really fun model. And I think most people don't give it the love it deserves outside the stats community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, basically, it's also because of these floor and ceiling effects. It's really interesting, too, because, yeah, as you said, it makes you think about absolute effects versus uh, relative effects, because, well, maybe sometimes you will see a relative effect that multiplies uh, the odds of the result by, I don't know, two or three. Yeah. But... On the absolute scale, it doesn't matter because maybe some of the other predictors already made the event you're interested in very probable or very improbable. So multiplying the odds by two or three won't change anything. So, you know, yeah. So it forces you to think about these two scales, absolute and relative effects. It, it's true. It's a, it's a really good example. Well done, Will. <laughs> I love this answer. <laughs> Okay, so maybe just one last question before asking you the final two questions. Do you encounter common difficulties in your models and your data and how do you usually solve them? 
I mean, I think common difficulties are there's never enough data, right? Like even in the era of big data, the choices you make are always on less data than you have. The choices that are important are always on less. And like I said, I, I focus a lot on sort of simple models and sort of seeing what I can do with them. So it's interesting because actually this brings up an interesting point I do want to make about sort of simple models and these problems. So when I was actually working at Wayfair, I was just using very simple linear models to analyze tons of sort of sales traffic. It's actually an interesting case because we have data that would have not enough observations. And you'd say, this is why you need hierarchical models, right? Because you have these low observations, we're going to make an estimate. But the interesting thing about using a traditional, just like logistic model is that occasionally the estimates of the model would explode because we had these weird things happening. And almost every time those weird things happened and we had these models explode is because something actually weird happened in the real world. Mm. Like we would have an error. We were we had one item, we were showing it and it was out of stock. And that's why one of the parameters blew up in the model. Mm. So it was an interesting case where I was like, oh, if we actually had used more sophisticated model, we would have actually masked that. So I guess that gets a roundabout way to get into your answer. I think actually one of the challenges not getting too complex too quick, and I think it's a bigger challenge than it sounds, right? It sounds easy not to throw a neural network at every problem, yeah. but to sort of really say, okay, like here's a very simple linear view of the world, very wild assumptions, but do we really know what's happening and, and how do we know how the world works? I think building that out is a tricky part of it and sort of getting that sort of sanity checking of your models and all those things and knowing what the right call is. I think it's always hard to sort of figure out like what's the next best step. Even if it's not really a proper posterior predictive check, like I think looking at how your models behave is a huge part of, it's actually really changed in my modeling. I used to just look at scores, right? Like this is a better score than this model. You got better AUC in this one. And now I really look at what are the assumptions this model makes and how do those play out in different situations. On my team, one of my projects is actually to build this out more robustly so we can sort of say, okay, this model, yes, it has better AUC. Yes, it's doing better this month revenue wise, but what happens during an extreme event? And so that's something actually I want to get even better at is sort of really testing out models. I think in general, knowing how a model behaves is understudied by a lot of people in, in industry. Two, three jobs ago, we had this logistic model in production. Very simple, just doing a predictive task. It was really just trying to predict whether something was one group or another. But the real world data was from a wildly different distribution than the training data, right? Then the whole training set, now that's a train test cross-validator. The data we had to train the model on was in a different universe than the actual real world data. And so we were getting wildly different distributions of predictions and estimates, especially in industry. I think in academia is a lot better at this, but in, in industry sort of really studying What's the behavior of your model? And getting time for that. I think it's always a tricky thing at, at work, right? Is to get time to simulate models. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, so maybe just one last question before asking you the two last questions. <laughs> But, uh, because you, you do a lot of stuff. So I'm curious what you have planned for the coming month and uh, what you're most excited about for the coming month. Whoa, this is a rough month to be excited, right? For people listening in the future, you know, the world's in a crazy state right now. It's not just the virus, it's the economic impact. So, you know, at work, I'm kind of hoping to use this time to, as things slow down a bit, to sort of build better processes and systems and build out this stuff. That's sort of what I'm immediately excited about. Yeah. Writing-wise, I actually have a, a contract with No Starch for another book. I'm not feeling super stats writing right now. I'm not writing a lot right now. The next book idea is pretty wild. I'm very excited about it, just not right now. I really want to do a very computational approach to statistics and build out a lot of the nuances of generalized linear models using JAX and Python. And I have this really ambitious idea. I really want to sort of make it so that anyone can really pull apart models and play with them and understand how everything works and really understand it, understand where all these variance estimates come from and these tools you use and all that. So I'm very excited about that still, but I think like at this time, it's sort of a quiet time. So I feel like it's a weird time to be too excited about anything. I'm, I'm trying to maintain a healthy level of anxiety and observations. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Okay, so before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the two questions now that I ask uh, every guest at the end of the show. So the first one is, uh, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Oh, this is a tricky one. I've been thinking about this one a lot. You know, obviously it's going to be somewhat philosophical in nature. And so like, especially at this time, it comes up even more pressure. Like when you asked me this question a month ago, and the world was not in this crazy state. We thought maybe it might be. Yeah. I had a similar answer, and I think I'm sort of coming down on it. So I'm actually, being an English major, the one thing I kind of feel sort of failed on is keeping up with sort of my critical theory and my understanding political systems. And it's a very weird answer, right, for a probability thing. It's supposed to be about math or research. But mm. I've been reading a lot more on Marx recently and sort of looking at how economic systems work and understanding our systems better in a critical way, understanding how power structures work. I used to always tell people, when I was talking to English majors, 
more than math people. I used to say Foucault and probability theory equally are important in my understanding the world. And that used to be a pitch to get people that read Foucault to study probability theory. And now I feel like I want to pitch that the other way, right? Like models are limited and there's a time for qualitative philosophical questions for looking at how the world behaves and thinking about how the world. So unlimited time, unlimited resources. I <laughs> want to work through volume one of capital, right? And, and understand these things a bit better because I think they're really important right now. I think we're really seeing so much more than just a disease in a pandemic, right? That's just the surface level thing that's attaching to a larger structural problem. So there's a lot of things about the political economy I, I want to understand better. And I feel like English major Will would have continued on that path. I'm glad I learned probability. I'm glad I have that stronger background. I'm still reading some books on Bayesian stuff now. I'm still thinking about that, but I'm also reading David Harvey's Limits of Capital right now and thinking about that as well. And to add to that, you know, sort of the unlimited resources part of it, I do think in a dangerous way, we've become a society that's not as critical of the systems around us. Uh, since I was young to now, I've seen sort of the general sort of literacy of critical theory, of actual like real political thinking, not just reactionary public sphere politics. So many great French authors, right? I was reading Deleuze's postscript on societies of control the other day. And I was like, wow, this is our time, right? This is a great, hard, it's four page paper, but it's very hard to read. It takes practice and they sort of think these ways. But that sort of literacy and questioning has gone down. We need it now more than ever. We need people that ask questions about how things work, not just at a statistical level, but at a larger level. And so if I had unlimited resources and unlimited time, I would fund academies for people to think. I would create more angry intellectuals and, and more but true intellectuals, right? We like Noam Chomsky's great. He's getting old, right? He's our classic in America. He's like our classic. He's our only one, our only sort of real public intellectual. And I wish we had more of that. And I think we're in a time where we sort of need more of that. So probably surprising answer to that in a probability podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. That's also why I ask it. Uh, this question because uh, it's really interesting to have these uh, diverse answers and, and as I often say uh, what's interesting in this question is not uh, the particular answers but it's the distribution of them so you're yeah. definitely going to be <laughs> at uh, one end or the other of the distribution at least for now <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the second question is if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind dead alive or fictional who would it be oh I think I mean there's so many people I feel like there's two big ones they're both dead but obviously et james his book has been so influential to me so from a pure probability standpoint i feel like i could have a dinner with him and then we just angrily rant about things and i learned a lot and then I'm a huge fan of philosopher uh, Wittgenstein, right? So Wittgenstein is like my favorite philosopher. And I feel like he's also someone that if you could have like an hour long dinner with or more, hopefully a whole night, it would be just an outrageous conversation. And you'd have so many thoughts. If you ever want a fun book, his mathematical lectures in Cambridge are one of my favorite things to read little bits of at a time. He was teaching a class in Cambridge University and it was right after Alan Turing had just graduated with his PhD from Princeton. And so it's literally lecture notes of Wittgenstein and others, all like five or six students in this class and what they're talking about. And Wittgenstein and, and Turing are getting in these really interesting debates because you can tell Turing is like, I am the smartest person in the world right now. And you're just some crazy old philosopher that's always been weird. But you can tell that Wittgenstein is like, I was once that person too. I know how to handle this conversation. And it's just a delight to read. So yeah, I think those are my two like major people who I would love to love to be able to chat with if I could. Yeah, nice answer. Well, uh, Will, it's a pleasure talking with you. Well done again on your book. It's a really good work and uh, I'm sure listeners can't wait to read it now. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure being on this podcast. I'm so excited I get to be on. I love listening to it. So I'm really happy that you could have me on. Yeah, you bet. Thank you really. I really hope we we managed to pass on your passion and enthusiasm for <laughs> probability and the, and the projection fallacy. So as always, I put free sources and, and, and a link to your uh, website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So thank you again, uh, Will, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, fit MC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. 
Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.